Welcome to Talking Bach, a podcast by Bach Academy Australia. My name is Madeline Easton and I am the Artistic Director of Bach Academy Australia. This brand new podcast series will accompany each of our concert series throughout the year. The topic of our upcoming season is the weapons of rhetoric. Now, throughout this podcast season, we will be chatting to three different but equally wonderful exponents of the arts of rhetoric. The idea behind this podcast season is to whet your appetite for the wonderful music of Bach you will hear, but to also really deepen and enrich your knowledge of the fantastic and fascinating subject of the weapons of rhetoric. My guest today for our very first ever episode is Judy Tarling, none other than the author of the book, The Weapons of Rhetoric, which we are basing our entire first concert series around. Judy is considered the worldwide expert on the subject of rhetoric. She has written no less than six books on the subject, mostly on music, but also on the connection between landscape gardening and rhetoric, which is absolutely fascinating. I have had the most wonderful hour talking to Judy, so please enjoy this first episode. Hello, Judy. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Bach. It's great to communicate with you again. Judy, I've been reading, I mean, I've, I've known you for all these years, but I've been reading about your life and all these amazing things and places you, you've studied over the years. And uh, I noticed that you studied at the Royal Academy of Music and at the Royal College. Yes, I did. I, I had a, um, a rather fragmented uh, musical education because um, I started off uh, after school. I went to Dartington for a prep course. Then I um, tried to get into the London colleges and I, I was sort of um, not wholly welcomed by them. In fact, I was uh, I failed to get in the place I wanted to get in. And so I went to the academy instead. <laughs> and um, that was, I just found it very disappointing um, from many points of view. So I topped out and after a bit, I got into the college to do a postgrad. Um, and after two terms, I got a job in, in the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, which is where I wanted to be anyway. So you could say that I sort of evaded um, a proper <laughs> musical education. I never took any exams. Well, I took my LRAM to begin with, but that was before I even went to college. So I sort of um, rather avoided uh, having any of that uh, four-year sort of drudgery or I mustn't call it drudgery, uh, studying. Um, and there I was, uh, you know, in the job, what essentially drop of my dreams in a in an excellent symphony orchestra. Um, That's incredible. So that was my musical education. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing, actually, to hear you say that. In, in some ways, we've had parallel lives, you know, because I wanted to get into the Royal Academy and um, I didn't get in um, because of financial reasons and all sorts of other things. So I ended up at the Royal College as well as a postgrad. And then from then on, um, I ended up working with the City of Birmingham Symphony as well, which you believe. Oh, <laughs> I know. Well, it's just I, amazing. I was there in um, 1969, so that was before uh, Rattle came. Uh, look, it's it's still a fantastic orchestra. I had a wonderful time there. Um, and I was working as a casual violinist right up until moving back to Australia here in 2019. Yeah, but I think, I, correct me if I'm wrong, darling, but I think we met in the Hanover Band. Oh, yes, yes. Well, I was in the Hanover Band almost from the beginning. That's 1981, 1980. And I was principal viola there for 20 years, essentially. So See, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure that's where we met. I've been racking my brains trying to think, <laughs> where did we meet each other? And it could well have been there, you know, because um, when I was living with the wonderful Libby Valfish, she actually got me into the Hanover Band as a casual violinist. And then I ended up being their concertmaster from 2006 to 2016. So I must yeah. have worked with you many, yeah. many, many yeah. times with the wonderful Roy Goodman and the yeah. wonderful late Sir Charles McCarris many yeah. times as well. Yeah. Yes. yes, I mean, that was in, in 1981, I think Hanover Band uh, scored the uh, well, first recordings of certainly the Beethoven piano concertos, the symphonies, and then that incredible Haydn series. Which yeah. was never completed, but uh, that I think that was the most thrilling uh, of all the 
the um, projects with Roy uh, directing from the keyboard, which was great, you know. Yes, how uh, wonderful. Yes. I missed out on that. It was just before my time, but I yes. listen to those recordings constantly. They are just timeless and magnificent. Yes. Um, and listen, whilst I get the chance, I must just fondly remember the late Caroline Brown, who had huge influence on my life and was a very dear friend. Her, her idea about starting the Hanover Band was at a time when most people in period instruments were playing Baroque music. Yes. But she had the the foresight to to go straight into the classical and and you know the with the Beethoven projects yeah what a legacy very very brave I think. yeah I know but I also want to talk to you a little bit about your group called the Pali and you've made over 70 recordings with this incredible groundbreaking group and is it true that there are still only three groups in the world that play this kind of music on these instruments um well I think um with the Pali, I must say, the uh, director was Peter Holman, our sister, you know, a member. <laughs> and uh, yeah. when they uh, established the Renaissance Violin Band, that is early set up instruments playing all on gut. So every, every string in the group was gut, including the basses, yeah. um, bass violins with the period copies of period instruments, um, very early um, setups. And I was leading that group from 1985. It's um, really groundbreaking stuff, isn't it? Dozens really groundbreaking. And, dozens of and it was all based on Pete Holman's research into English music. So the whole series was called The English Orpheus. So it went from Dowland to uh, the early 19th century psalmody. You know, wow. Um, through the, right through the 18th century in English music. It was fantastic. The, the thing about the what we used to call Renaissance violins is that um, people generally play things like Monteverdi or even Purcell on later Baroque instruments. And we wanted to show, um, you know, what it would have sounded like with a whole group all matched. The, yeah. the point is that all the instruments in the group match. So the, the sound is, is incredible. And with the earlier repertoire, of course, using the bass violin instead of the cello. Yes. And no right. and no double bass, no sixteen foot double bass. And that alters the whole sound of the of the ensemble. Yeah, well that's one of the things that makes you such an incredible musician is that you're interested in all these things and you've had all this incredible so many years and all these recordings, all this experience. It's it's amazing. <laughs> and also I, I um I'd like now to to talk a little bit about your six books that you've written. Six books, Judy. That's just absolutely wonderful. And I've I've got my little list here. I'm going to read off my shopping list. So, uh, according to to my research, you have written a big book called Speaking with Quintilian, the uh, the wonderful book that I have read and used many times with my students. Baroque string playing for ingenious learners which, by the way, is a work of genius. And every student who listens to this needs to go and order that book, if ever are you interested. In fact, not even if you're interested. You should read it anyway. If you're interested in music and where this style came from, you will learn a lot. And then, of course, The Weapons of Rhetoric, the one which we are basing this entire series around. And then More Weapons, which is all about uh, you're using the cello suites as a kind of a, a way of providing exercises and, and examples of the weapons of rhetoric. And then the one thing I just thought was fabulous was your book about landscapes of eloquence. I had no idea that there was a correlation between speech and rhetoric and an English garden. And tell me about this. I mean, we will get on to the other ones. Don't, don't worry about that. But tell our listeners about this incredible connection you found with gardening and rhetoric. Uh, well, it started when... Um... I was after I'd published Weapons of Rhetoric long, long time ago, so I knew I was quite familiar with all the the subject. And I was reading this garden design book written by Russell Page, who is twenty century designer. Incidentally, he designed Lady Walton's garden in um, the Mediterranean. He was writing about how to design your garden, and I came across this paragraph that I thought. Well, that's straight out of a rhetoric book. He said uh, something like, well, you mustn't make everything the same. So you must create character in different parts of the garden by distributing 
certain things in a certain way so that you get variety within each corner or you know you don't have the same plants the whole way through the garden but you um you make this uh, characters um so i thought goodness that's that could have been straight out of quintillion this is what we do when we play music we try not to we get variety we don't use the same ornament the same all the time we try and uh, make it interesting to listen to for the audience so what he's basically talking about is a garden audience he's talking about the performance of the garden <laughs> to the visitor so as you walk around the garden you're you've got these different feelings and um <clears throat> although he's a 20th century designer when i went back and looked at the 18th century sources especially by humphrey repton who wrote a lot. I mean, a, a lot of designers, well-known designers didn't write, but Repton wrote down all his thoughts. And it was a complete parallel with rhetoric. And I thought, although he, although the word is never mentioned, it's clear that he's trying to, he's thinking of the garden audience as being influenced, having different emotions as they walk around the garden, like surprise or variety or contrasts, especially in lighting, with using trees, plants, etc. And a lot of gardens of the 18th century have these itineraries, you know, um, designed itineraries so that you walk through different areas and you get different feelings. Well, it seemed to me obvious that yeah, there was it does, a actually, rhetorical thing going on. Now that you're so, explaining um, it, yeah, it does. Yeah, so, so I, I picked out all the passages that I thought you know, were, were parallel to rhetoric. And I matched them up with with a, a person who would have had this sort of education and understood those things. And it seemed to me that they, you know, it went together quite um, without any any problem. Yeah. The um, garden historians had, had never heard of this before. So they sort of said, well, nobody's ever mentioned it. <laughs> so, you know, they sort of, I got... Um, various views from these you know very well established historians um so in fact i did my ma uh, at birkbeck college in garden history in order to sort of uh, back up everything i was saying and and no this was totally new idea to them but since then i've spent a lot of time looking around trying to match up all the arts rhetoric forms a sort of like an umbrella and it and it each art painting sculpture whatever you want to say garden design borrows elements from rhetoric to make it effective so even you know starting with renaissance painting um you know the gesture the emotion that uh, you can discover and then obviously poetry and music and then uh sculpture also gesture and so on so i'm i'm looking all the time to find connections and when you read about one art quite often there's a reference to another art to help you understand so by looking at the same thing from two points of view you get the point so you could you know poetry music's an, an obvious one well in a way that is a, that is one of the weapons isn't it yes, to reference exactly. other yes. things yes. in order to yes. make your point and and you find in the even in the garden landscape garden books you've got references to music you're saying oh this is like an opera set or you know, well, I've actually this... got a little quote here from your book, which says, Cicero talks about the figures of rhetoric adorning language like flowers in a melody. Sorry, a meadow. I saw yeah. melody, but the word is meadow. Figures of speech were used to decorate language in the same way that flowers are used to decorate gardens. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the floral connection or horticultural, whatever you want to say, it goes on and on and on. I mean, there were um, books of collections of uh, of literature were called um florilegium that's that's what it means a collection of flowers and uh, i got a book a, a copy of a french book last week um six, uh, 17th century book about uh, the parterre de rhetorique and so he's thinking of a parterre of flowers and each flower 
represents a certain feeling in rhetoric. It's, it's just like yeah. very elaborate. Oh, um, look, it's incredible. Parallel. It's a, an amazing yeah. subject, actually, um, <clears throat> one of which I'd love to get more involved in. I, um, I've always thought that if tomorrow, God forbid, I woke up and I could never play the violin again, I would be <laughs> a, I would be a gardener. I just yeah. adore yeah. gardening. I think we've spoken yeah. a bit about this over our emails yeah. over the last few weeks, but yeah. it's a wonderful thing to yeah. do. I know you're an amazing gardener. Well, I'm not. Well, it's not so much about gardening as as designed landscape yeah i mean we're talking these people here they had huge estates and yes. they could they could you know manipulate views as far as the the, the boundary on the on the horizon you know? yes well. not talking about um an allotment here <laughs> <laughs> exactly we're sort of talking versailles gay aren't we yeah so, Judy, tell me, what got you interested in rhetoric in the first place? This book you've written, The Weapons of Rhetoric, which has so fascinated me and a lot of other people, it's fascinated me to the point I'm designing an entire concert series around it. What got you into rhetoric in the first place, this huge study you've done around it? Well, um, it started when, about 1995, <laughs> I decided that somebody needed to write a book about period historical string playing um, and I thought I was waiting for somebody to do it and nobody seemed to be doing it I thought it was an obvious gap in the market so I, I thought okay I'll have a go see if I can do it so I started um, rereading all the material you know Quantz and Leopold Mozart and all these people um, and as soon as I started reading I realized that every one of them mentioned the importance of representing the passions and making that like rhetoric. Uh, this word, the passions, which is the 18th century term for the emotions. They, all, the, all the sources mention this. And then the other connection was to say, in order to do that, um, we have to play like orators. And well, you could say music is like rhetoric. That's an obvious statement. When they say you must play like an orator, I thought, now what does that mean? I don't know what that means. What's the underlying thing that I don't know? Yeah. So I looked all the time I was writing the string book. I was collecting material about this. And eventually there, I got so much material about rhetoric that I realized it was another book. So I cut that down, what is chapter one in the string book is just a little snippet, a little taster of what um, became the Weapons of Rhetoric book. So um, all this all this collection, collecting of uh, you must play like an orator, I, I just didn't know what that meant. And all that was available at that time in musical terms were catalogues of figures. So most of the writers about rhetoric and music concentrated on the figures. Uh, so there's a very elaborate uh, system of figures of speech, all which have, you know, uh, names, labeling. So what, what happened was people would get a piece of music and label it up with, a, with uh, the figures. And they thought, oh, job done. We know about it. You know, but we don't know how to play it. We know what they're called. There's what I call labelling. Yes. <laughs> so we've we've labelled the music, but we still don't know what that means in practice. I was looking all the time for how do I deliver this? You know, I I might know what it's called, but it doesn't help me deliver it convincingly. So all the time I was looking for material that would help me as a performer. And um I mean, there were some marvellous books. Uh, the um, Dietrich Bartel book, Musica Poetica, came out about then. A fantastic book, but it's all about figures. Um, and not much. Uh, it relates musical figures to rhetoric figures. Fantastic study. But I couldn't find much about how to deliver that. Um, and one book that really helped me was... Um, again, came out just before then, it was Robert Toft, play music like your heart or something. Um, and in the back of that, his bibliography was a real lift off for me because it sent me to certain 
18th century texts and also the classical sources. Um, and I, I asked people, uh, people I was working with, um, for instance, who I knew had studied classics like Andrew Manzi. He was a classical scholar at Cambridge. And incidentally, so was Christopher Hogwood. He studied Oh, wow, classics I did not know that. It makes sense. And e Emma Kirkby, oh, classics gosh. at Cambridge. Yes. So, you know, there was a, a lot of um, interesting people that I could ask. And Andrew Manzi sent me to Quintilian. He said, oh, you have to read Quintilian and sort of ran away. I thought, oh, okay, I'll go and read <laughs> yes. that. And that was a big job, I can tell you, because there's very, there's 12 books, you know, I mean, so I thought, right, this is what I've got to do. So I started reading the classical rhetoric books, and uh, there was a lot I didn't understand. I, you know, I, some things I sort of latched onto, but there was a lot of, um, I obviously needed a lot more knowledge. So that's when I decided um, I had to step away from music and learn about rhetoric away from music and then come back and I would understand a lot more. So that's when I thought, you know, how, how can I do this? And I did a degree with the Open University in Humanities with Classical Studies. And that took me from fifth century Athens right up to the Renaissance, Northern Renaissance courts. And every module I did gave me something that I didn't know about rhetoric. It was fantastic. Wow. So when I done that took six years or something. <laughs> and all the time I was collecting material for, you know, and I, and I became more and more understanding, for instance, uh, people like Luther and Erasmus and that, that period, but important educators in the 16th century and particularly lots about the history of education that I thought that was very important in the age of Shakespeare, for instance, to learn how about the grammar schools and how what they learned and everything. And that gave me the basis to go back to music and, and see uh, a lot more and go back to the classical texts. Well, we are very then, glad you did, Judy, because we have this <laughs> wonderful gift that you've given us, this incredible book. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, now, let's talk Bach. Let's talk about the importance of Bach. And I want to ask you personally what your journey with Bach has been and why you think Bach matters. Then we're going to talk about the correlation between, well, not the correlation, but then we're going to talk about how Bach uses rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's if you in in the in my day as a student, if if you play in the symphony orchestra, you, you never got to play Bach or 18th century music at all, did you? I mean, it's just not what you did. So you might have encountered him as a student. So if you played the violin, obviously you studied the unaccompanied works. But when I was a student, I was a viola student, not a violin, because I. After I got grade eight on the violin, I changed to viola to become, you know, professional. And so I played the cello suites on the viola and the gamba sonatas, and that was that was the repertoire for for viola players. Then after that, I mean, um, in the symphony, obviously, you wouldn't play any 18th century music, and if you did, it was absolutely horrible. <laughs> I remember playing Haydn and thinking, God, this is awful. And I, of course, I didn't know why. And at that time, you know, historically informed performance hadn't really happened. And so um, I, I, if, if any 18th century music came up, I just dreaded it because I thought it was going to be <laughs> deadly, which it was. Yeah. So um, after that, um, after I left the symphony orchestra world, as it were, and I discovered the Baroque violin, um, at that point, I hadn't studied any of the unaccompanied Bach. I hadn't played Corelli. I hadn't played, you know, there's this is a ma massive repertoire that was waiting to be discovered. So uh, that was a sort of eye-opener. <laughs> Although yeah. when I started playing Baroque violin, I was much more interested in learning about the 17th century repertoire. So I spend a lot of time with the early Italian composers and also 
people like Bieber and Schmelzer. That was I, that was the music I loved best. Because yeah. um, I, I mean, I'm I'm not a, a great soloist or anything, so I, I can't stand up and play on the company bar. <laughs> but I can stand up and play uh, Bieber and Schmelzer, which I really love doing. Um, then. After that, I mean, because in the Pali we were so concentrated on English music, I didn't play a lot of Bach, but I did play um, in Roy Goodman's Brandenburg Consort. Uh, he worked a lot with King's College, where, of course, he was the famous soprano on the Allegri Yes, on <laughs> recording. that recording. Yes. <laughs> and with Stephen Cleary and Roy, we did yeah. many recordings and uh, videos of all the great. Bach works, the, the Matthew Passion, the John Passion, and also some Handel, Israel and Egypt, and so on. And that was that was very exciting. And um, we did the um, early version of the John Passion, which has some amazing music in it, which you never hear. I the know. Fantastic right. arias. Um, one with a huge cello solo and. Yeah, it was a, a real eye-opener. Yeah. So tell me why you think Bach matters, particularly now, here and now. During lockdown, all I did was play Bach on the, on the harpsichord. I put my violin down and I spent, I think I spent nine months just, I mean, I'm a moderate keyboard player, not brilliant by any means, but I had enough keyboard uh, skill to spend the whole of that time. I mean, I think I only had one volume on my desk, uh, on the keyboard desk, and that was the Partitas. Yeah. Um, and yeah, also the Toccatas, which are incredible. But that's that's all I could play months and months and months, just play those pieces. You know, there's so much variety. There's there's everything that you want. You, I can't imagine uh, needing any other music. <laughs> I know. I really can relate to that. I mean, you know, you, you ha over in England, you had a much longer and harsher lockdown than we went through here. I mean, the citizens of Melbourne had it twice. They had two yeah. horrifically long yeah. lockdowns. We had one very long one last year. And I was the same. I was sort of trapped in my little flat, you know, all on my own. Um, and it was just me and my violin. And, and yeah. I, I was like you, I just listened to cantatas and mm. played Bach the whole time. And yeah. Yeah. for myself, I can't speak for anyone else, but I found such solace in that. Mm. It, it was really incredible. And I found that I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, this music is just so relevant to here and now. It still provides us with all that joy and, and comfort and all those universal themes mm. which are still there. We still yeah. go through the yeah. same things today that they did then. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's incredible. So listen, um, tell me why you think Bach is the grand master of rhetoric. <laughs> to start in his life, I mean, the connection between, uh, which Luther established between language, music and religion, um, that, that was so bound up together that uh, People, anybody who went to school, a grammar school, uh, children even from, you know, 10 years old, knew more about rhetoric than we do today. Yes, wow. <laughs> they had this incredible language-based curriculum. So they all in Latin, of course. Um, they started grammar, and, and by the age of seven, they were ready to do um, easy write, uh, easy rhetorical exercises and not only write them but deliver them so they had to stand up and you know debate two sides of a question and so on um, and of course they learned new testament greek so they could read the bible you know they knew what the bible is so the whole of the uh, the lutheran idea of language was so that people could read the bible in language they understood so language is incredibly important and then um, Bach was appointed at the Thomas Schuler as the, the music, the cantor had to teach Latin, Was that was part of the job. So it was music and language bound up together. But he, he deputized the Latin teaching because he obviously didn't have time to do it. Yes. Um, and uh, the Latin 
and these these language classes. Um, I've seen a timetable from a 17th century Thomas Schuller day, and it just sandwiches music and language right through the day. So you get um, sandwiched between music practice or is is these these other language skills. Yeah, so right from the so, start, Bach yeah, was so right he, from it day been, one. It was in his consciousness, yes, wasn't absolutely. it? It, it, it wouldn't be something yeah. separate from, yeah. you know, it's just bound up with writing, speaking, um, anything to do with a, a text, a poetic text, you know, that would be embedded in, mm. in the idea. So, I mean, with when writing music, Bach, there's so many levels you can you can look at with, with the rhetoric. So, uh, obviously, he wants to illustrate the text, so there's a lot of ways very simple nat what I call natural expression so like the devil it'll always be going downwards to hell and the, to heaven is always up I mean that's very very obvious um dissonance is bad consonance is good so anything with a lot of dissonance is, is very uh angry and disturbing and lack of dissonance will mean peace and calm and so on then other sort of obvious representative things are the baseline for the earth, crucifixes in, in um, B minor mass, he was dead and buried to a to a ground base. So that is true. Very, yeah, this sort of thing. So somebody yes. once said to me, he thought um, that uh, Dido's lament when I'm laid in earth to a ground base, he, he thought that was a joke. He's like, he's like, oh, 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 isn't that? <laughs> I think it's not a joke. It's, it's very deliberate, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's embedded in the music. It's a way of thinking about the music, which il illustrates the, the text and the idea behind it. So it's not a joke. It's just a natural, expressive way of, of saying what you want. Very often, actions can be um, illustrated in the music. So falling down when Christ falls down. Um, to pray or something, the the violins go downwards in little little mm. um, ex expressive uh, phrases. And what's in the Matthew Passion? I'm talking about um, wonderful. There in the, the the first beat is empty in that figure. Da, 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 da. Oh, that's da, right. The repetition before the aria, and it has these gaps in it which really take your breath away. So he's falling down, but there's no sort of security by by having the first beat. Um, well, I mean, the Matthew pattern's just packed with, with things like that. Um, so action, um, and then a lot of people love looking at number in Bach. They do, <laughs> I, the numerology the and the symbology. Pe people are very, very keen on that. <laughs> but it's I'm where not things quite get sure. fun, yeah. Well, you, you can spend your life counting bars and dividing them up and, and but I'm not sure what difference that will make to the performance so it's, it's, it's sort of um, intellectual indeed thing. I mean maybe Bach did but I'm not so um, keen on that I mean obviously in the 17th century people thought of music as part of the quadrivium which was the number arts, the part of the liberal arts belonging to number arts. So music and maths, you know, they always say they go together, but it's because of numbers. So music, um, thinking about music in terms of the quadrivium, um, we have to think about proportion and resonance and how that relates to dividing up numbers. Uh, so people thought of music as being a, a heavenly resonant, resonance with the heavens. This actually really, really relates numb. to Bach in a way because, uh, and this also ties back to rhetoric, you're right, well, the way I interpret it as well is that, uh, you know, for example, one of the pieces of music we're performing in this concert series is, well, I will be performing it, is the G minor Adagio and Fugue. And Bach succeeds in writing a four-part fugue for one violin. And the more I read about the concept of counterpoint, these four voices, each one talks to each other. So you have rhetoric on sort of a tiny scale on one violin. 
But as you say, each voice is reaching for heaven. It's a way oh. of, of trying to go up and up and up and up and oh. up into the heavens. Yes. Bach was a genius at this. In my humble opinion, I think he mm -hmm. did that better than anyone else. Yes. And also going back to what you said about word painting and the actions that he writes into music, I cannot think of a single other composer who was more successful in, in manipulating our emotions to, to bring us into this vivid pictorial and musical and you know an audio experience of the music and it was all in the aim of convincing us of manipulating our emotions wasn't it yes yes i mean the the, the word people always use with rhetoric is persuasion persuasion so, indeed persuasion so it's yeah. persuading our emotions but but what you're saying about the different voices is another thing that i've learned from rhetoric is that um when you open a piece, you can start in a very small way and build it up. And that and that's the best way of um, maintaining the attention of your audience. If you pile in there too strong at the beginning, they sort of lose you very quickly lose the plot um, <laughs> and they and they go to sleep. Yeah. But if you can draw them in, and this is exactly what what a fugue does, and the, the word they use in rhetoric is insinuating to uh -huh. insinuate yourself. so by starting this is what a fugue does in the most perfect way is you start with one voice and then another voice adds so the argument builds so you always want to be building your argument and um, i mean you can't it would be absurd to start with all four voices at once you have to start with one voice and this is something you've got in the two violin concerto and the Brandenburg six is the the two voices and the two voices can have this this argument conversation they can sometimes they they fight each other and sometimes they agree and sometimes you know they have have the argument um to to contradict each other exactly so each all these piece... different ways of con conversing each piece in this program I've tried to pick to really illustrate this absolute, you know, an absolute grand master's skill of providing conversation and rhetoric in music. Um, and I think that double concerto is just absolutely wonderful. It's it's a duel in a way, isn't it? Yes. Between yeah, the, the two yeah, voices. Yeah, it's yeah. just fabulous. Yeah. And the sixth Brandenburg concerto mm. and the, the gamba suite that we have. And also, we haven't even touched on the musical offering yet. Yes. Uh, and um, for those uh, of our listeners who don't know this particular work, it is a fascinating part of history. And it was all down to this one fateful night where J.S. Bach met King Frederick the Great of Prussia. And it was the old world colliding with the new world. Um, and Bach was challenged to a task, which was to improvise a fugue on an extremely difficult, completely non-rhythmic, chromatic subject composed in order to sort of challenge the old Bach uh, to create a fugue. And what he came back with was just nothing short of miraculous. And in a way, I reckon Bach won because three months later, he presented Kin Frederick and said, all right, mate, you think you can challenge me? Here's what I came up with. And we have the puzzle cannons where he challenged Kin Frederick to decode the canons. And he also presented him with this six-part Richikar, which is what we will be playing. And I've deliberately chosen this piece, actually, in order to demonstrate how Bach not only could write a fugue for four voices, but he is one with six. But more than that, it reaches for the heavens. It provides us with something so perfect and so beautiful, it trumps anything King Frederick and his ideas of this newfangled world could ever, ever, ever come up with because it reaches for a higher purpose, something greater than the sum of all of the human race. And in that way, I think Bach won that one. He won that argument. Yes. yes. What, what is amazing, it's the technical, it's, it's like the technical challenge, but the result is is more than that. It's, it's greater some, than the sum yes, of its yes, parts. Yes, yes, exactly. And that is why, in my opinion, Bach literally is the master of rhetoric. And, you know, uh, I'd just sort of love to sum up our wonderful conversation by saying <laughs> thank you for writing this book. It is the greatest gift you have given all of us. It's got me thinking. It's got my students thinking. And I really hope it's got all of our listeners thinking about this incredible relationship between speech music and the weapons of rhetoric, these techniques that can be used uh, 
Well, to persuade. It's not to manipulate. That sounds a bit sin- yeah. uh, sinister yeah. in a way. Yeah, it's to persuade, I think um, isn't it? some people over, overdo the rhetoric, thinking mm. uh, by exaggerating it, they can persuade the audience. They're, they're more effective in persuading the audience. But I think a lot of particularly Baroque groups, overdo what they think is rhetoric. In fact, they're just sending it up and making it comic, you know, making it a parody, a sort of parody of the music. What we want to do is find the rhetoric that's there and make sure we understand it. And that's then right. there are a lot of things um, that I found through reading rhetoric that just reinforce the ideas I had already. So um, I'm not imposing something, I'm not imposing some elaborate interpretation, I'm just finding what's there and using the natural expression to reinforce what I intend to say or what music intends to say. But a lot of people um, try and invent things to make, and they think they're being rhetorical by imposing these exaggerated sort of things, which I think in, just insults the audience. Actually. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm, I, I am passionately against falling into the trap of uh, making a concert a lecture. Uh, you know, so, sometimes that, that's great. But, you know, music shouldn't ever be presented in an academic way. It's like, oh, here, learn this yeah. audience. Or here, here's something we can demonstrate. This. No, 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 no. I don't yeah. want it to be about that. It's got to be honest. It's got to be straight from our hearts. To yes. to the audience, and, and I parts. think um, ideally the audience should be able to appreciate it without knowing anything. Exactly, I mean, and you, yeah. you should be able to listen to a piece of Bach or whatever baroque music without knowing anything about it, and then the performer ought to have the skills to communicate that directly without any sort of cleverness. So something I've been thinking about a lot recently is the resurgence of the idea of a scholar performer. And one thing I did years ago was to have a look at the uh, the sort of a timeline I found between uh, Viotti, who was around about in the 1760s, all the way to sort of Vieton in the 1860s. And I thought back in the 1700s, the performers were the scholars. They were the ones writing the books. Um, and then they would have their students and their students would also write books. But something changed around about the beginning of the 19th century. And I think it changed in Paris with the advent of the Paris Conservatoire and performers and writers such as Bayle, who wrote one of the very first treaties on the art of violin playing. And suddenly there became a relationship between the student and teacher, which was more like hero worship, if you like. So suddenly people started to talk about, oh, who did you, who did you learn from and who did you learn from? And the student would become the teacher, but they stopped writing treaties, if you like. They stopped writing books. And that continued right up until probably not that long ago, actually. I can't really put a date on it. But these days, my colleagues are all starting to become scholars again. Everyone is doing PhDs and everyone is relearning sort of the art of research and writing alongside their performance. But you were one of the first whoever did this after all that time. And what do you think about this idea of, of us as performers becoming scholars again, one and the same thing? Well, I'm not sure that I was one of the first to go. Well, what I see myself as doing is um, I'm on the side of the performer, put it like that. I'm, I'm not an academic. I, I haven't got a PhD. I haven't even got a music degree, actually. <laughs> I, I just read a few books, you know, oh. that's all. I just bother, bothered to read the books. Um, you know, but now I think it, it is getting more important to do the PhD because of the way um, study and so on and funding is, is all set up. Uh, I, I mean, at the time I was writing a book, I wanted to do it for the performer. So it seemed to me that if you pick up a period instrument, there's an obligation to learn something about <laughs> how to play it. You know? Whereas that didn't always happen, I must say, um, particularly in the 80s and 90s when it was you know, growing so much. Um, and I love the way that, um, Stanley Ritchie, who's one of my favorite teachers and performers, he puts it very well. He says, 
it's like getting on the bus without paying your fare. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. So he said, you know, he's he sees a lot of players who who are just jumping on the bus, but they but they haven't done the the homework, as it were. So I want I just wanted to forward fast forward the process of knowing about this for the player so they didn't have they we're not all reinventing the wheel you know trying, all re, going back and reading the same but we have to it's very important to read the historical sources yeah. so that we we leave ourselves room for experimentation so if we just do what our teachers tell us oh this is how you play rock music you do this blah 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 it doesn't leave any room for development or or even personal way of doing things, personal style, which is very important in rhetoric to have your personal style. And I th what has happened or tends to happen is um, there's a uniform way of playing develops and people think that's it. And then, you know, we're, we're dead because that's the that's complete cul-de-sac you know we can't go any further whereas if if we go all the time to the sources um somebody might come up come up with an idea or we've overlooked something that we should have known about um, i mean this uh, happened to me when when um in the parley mark cordell got his bass violin it was it was like a complete change in the whole sound of the group, you know, because the 16 foot double bass was out of a job. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that was a really important development. Now, there were, had been scholars written articles about this that decade before. Um, so we need, in a way, we need the scholarship to support the players uh, I mean, if it can be the same person, that's good. But also just discovering new repertoire, editing repertoire, like in the Purcell Society or, you know, Musica Britannica, having these marvellous volumes of things published so that it's available for performers. Um, so that we're not all scrabbling around looking at the same manuscripts in the British Museum or yes. Bodley and whatever. but of course so much is online now that's incredible um so that it's not necessary to spend a lot of money uh finding new repertoire yeah i think that's that's the um the sort of advent of the online library has really changed things for everybody actually yeah. Yeah. it's been absolutely fantastic i've just been very heartened i suppose to see all of my colleagues really getting into the scholarship and the research side of things these mm. days. Mm. It's been absolutely fantastic. But I do, you might not think so, but I think you're a pioneer. <laughs> uh, you may not have a PhD or a degree, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the fact that your, your, you know, your achievements in the scholarship uh, for music are absolutely huge and so valued. And we all, we all, I look up to you so much. In what in you know and what you do you're an inspiration oh thank you i mean when when i left school in 1965 i was looking for a degree a music degree that had a performance element in it and the, and there weren't any so you couldn't you know if you were studying music you you learned to write 16th century counterpoint you know, as far as i'm concerned you know, that's what it meant um and since then, it's been amazing the, the idea that you can do a PhD in performance practice now, uh, right up to you know uh, 20th century, even beginning of the 20th century performance practice. I've heard violinists play um, the most amazing things, like um, Debussy, you know, on with historical performance ideas, and um, also playing from different uh, early 20th century editions of Bach, playing Bach in a different ways, according to the, you know, that, oh, there's so much stuff online, all these old editions are online. So, you know, we, we can do that. It's, it's incredible. But you're going back to your earlier point of making it personal and making it your voice heard, using the weapons of rhetoric in your own voice is much actually should be at the, the, forefront of our minds rather than yes. getting 
too bogged down in, in an academia. Um, we're all different people, aren't we? I've got yeah. my voice, yeah. you've got your voice. Yeah. And uh, gosh, I remember having a very, very great conversation with Sir John Elliott Gardner about the importance of giving an honest performance at the end of the day. And we actually talked about Freddie Mercury, would you believe? <laughs> and, you know, it's strange. He never had a singing lesson in his life, but you'll never hear a voice which moves you more than his, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we don't. We just want an honest performance. We want something straight from us, um, which is us, and we can we can be as informed as possible. But it has to be us, doesn't it? Yes. Well, that's something I I really learned from reading the rhetoric books, is that I mean, up when people study early music and the treaties, they tend to come up with a series of rules. So, um, you know, you do this, you do you just follow a follow a prescribed list of, of things that you do um, but what I learned by reading the rhetoric books is that uh, eloquence goes beyond the rules so the rules are for beginners in fact interesting so, yeah so the rules you have to learn the rules then when you've got when you're in command of the rules you can see where it's appropriate to break the rules so um so you can you can bend the rules if you know how. <laughs> and what a master J.S. Bach was of yes. that. Um, yeah, well, look, I think that's a, a wonderful place to, to finish our podcast with. Judy, you've been amazing. I cannot thank you enough for making no, the time, for joining me on our very yeah. first podcast. It's, I'm thrilled to have you. And I am absolutely so grateful to you for writing your wonderful book, The Weapons of Rhetoric, in the first place. It has inspired me. It's inspired all of my students. And I hope those of you out there will get busy and order the book online and be as enlightened and delighted as I was when I just opened my mind to this incredible relationship between speech and music and gardening. Well, I hope everyone enjoys the concerts. I, I wish I was there playing myself. <laughs> well, you, everyone out there can enjoy the concert because it will yeah. be live streamed on the Australian Great. Digital Concert Fantastic. Hall. So yeah. you, you can buy a digital ticket and watch us yeah. online. <laughs> so, Judy, thank you so yeah. much. Take care and we'll see you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that chat just as much as I did. Now, to find out more about Bach Academy Australia, make sure you visit our website, which is www.bachacademyaustralia.com.au. Make sure you spell Academy the German way as well, spelt A-K-A-D-E-M-I-E, -E, staying true to our German roots, of course. On our website, you can find out the details of all our upcoming performances near you, and you can subscribe to our e-newsletter. Also, you can find Bach Academy Australia on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. But make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. Mm -hmm.